Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, it's politics and eggheads. It's the Wild West in New Hampshire as the governor's race heats up, Bernie Sanders' dark horse pulls ahead, Donald Trump's campaign morphs into a national referendum on anger, and he negotiates his rhetoric on women. Later, a professor and two comics comic walk into the studio. There's no punchline. We're getting giggly with two local comics and a sitcom writer. They are here to talk about the launch of Emerson College's new major in comedy arts and the journey from student to working comic. But first, joining me on the phone is Arnie Arneson, former Democratic legislator and host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on New Hampshire's WNHN-FM. Hi, Arnie. Hi, Kelly. Also with me is Patrick Griffin, former GOP political strategist and current managing partner of Purple Strategies New England. Welcome back, Patrick. Hi, Carly. Hey, Kelly. Good to be here. Those I just called you Carly. <laughs> I know. There we go. There <laughs> well, we go. But Donald hasn't said anything of. about you. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Well, we'll get to Carly Fiorina later. Uh, these two today are are part of our New Hampshire Insiders uh, segment, and I'm happy to have you for your sharp takes on New Hampshire. I want to go local first because we've been talking about dynasty politics on the national front with Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush being perhaps heirs to uh, the next level of uh, political um, leadership. And in New Hampshire, we have a Sununu who's stepping up to put his hat in the ring for governor, and that would be Chris Sununu, who is the son of former governor John Sununu. Uh, Weigh in on what that means, and um, is that a real threat to Maggie Hassan? I'll start with you, Patrick. Well, you know, Kelly, I'm not even sure that Governor Hassan is going to be a, a candidate for re-election. It's pretty clear the signals she has sent and the signals that have been sent from Washington, uh, Harry Reid and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign co- uh, Committee, is that they want her to run for the U.S. Senate. And I think that's probably what she's going to do, uh, choosing to challenge uh, uh, Kelly Ayotte. Uh, so this may not be her fight to fight, and the question becomes, who do the Democrats nominate against someone like Chris Sununu. Uh, one quick thing about Chris Sununu. He's young. He's, he's optimistic. He's a very bright guy. Uh, got a lot of energy. I think that this is not so much about monarch, monarchy politics as it is about someone who's been active uh, as an executive counselor and someone who's pretty well known. So the question really becomes, uh, can the Democrats put someone, anyone up, who has the ability to continue what Maggie Hassan and Democrats have been doing, which some would argue it's time for a change on that kind of thing. I think Kristen Nunu will be a pretty strong candidate, actually. Arnie, what do you think? Uh, where's my shovel? Let's see. It's not about monarchy politics. If his last name wasn't Sununu, people couldn't pick him out of a lineup. So, I mean, I hate to say this. He's been an executive counselor uh, for a couple of years. And, and the problem with New Hampshire is we don't have a lieutenant governor. We have only one elected statewide official. That's governor. And that makes it very difficult for a lot of people to sort of get traction. Chris Sununu is not the only one looking at this position. I know Jeannie Forrester, who is the head of the Finance Committee in the Senate, is looking at it. Bra- uh, Jeb Bradley is looking at it. But the problem 
is is that it's very hard to get sort of that uh, statewide notoriety. And Chris Sununu uh, understands that his last name resonates with a lot of people. It resonates with the base. His brother uh, was in Congress. His father was governor and worked for George Bush. And what you really have here is an opportunity to build on that name, except this is the worst year to be running on, you know, a name that's familiar to anyone because people are rejecting, as um, Patrick said, the dynasty concept. You're seeing that happen with Jeb Bush in New Hampshire. I suspect you might see that happen with uh, Chris Sununu as well. Plus, Chris has some interesting things to talk about, especially since he was the deciding vote on defunding Planned Parenthood from the state perspective because of this sort of gotcha video that had no application in the state of New Hampshire because Planned Parenthood of Northern New England does not in any way, shape, perform, participate in the sale, giveaway of of any kind of parts uh, when they, they perform an abortion. So even if the video is real or not, it doesn't apply here. So it's going to be an interesting election, but not a not the best year to be running on a dynasty name. Okay. Well, let's move on. Um, because the other thing that's happening that I think is interesting which it's both local and um, national, is that the, the the local folks, Democrats, have asked for more debates uh, for Democratic candidates, and they've made a powerful case that there's not enough. And the one that's one of the ones that's been scheduled is the only one in New Hampshire is December 19th, uh, the Saturday before Christmas, which seems bad planning. Um, and with the field changing in terms of who's up and who's down and all of that, it would seem that for the citizenry, more conversation is better. Arnie, I'll let you start off and then uh, Patrick can well, add. Well, this is the, uh, the smallest number of debates we have ever had. Number one. Number two, uh, I suspect that they thought because it was going to be an anointment of Hillary Clinton that there would be really no viable alternatives and therefore the debates were going to be unnecessary and, in fact, might be an opportunity to sort of detract from uh, from the Clinton uh, opportunity to become the primary winner. I think a lot has changed since that uh, in, t- in two ways. One, obviously you're seeing what the hap- what's happening with the poll numbers for Bernie Sanders in both Iowa as well as in New Hampshire. He's now beating her by one point on the last poll. I'm not sure that's accurate in Iowa, but he's clearly beating her in New Hampshire. So that means that there is a a viable challenge. Plus, Plus, Joe Biden might be getting into this race. I think what's crucial is, is that people really need to see Hillary Clinton um, in a in another setting other than Secretary of State. Last time she ran in 2008 against Barack Obama, the world has changed. It's changed at the national level. It's changed at the international level. And I think she needs to be challenged. And I think this is important for voters. And since she's been so reluctant to speak to the media, I think this kind of a debate format with just a handful of candidates running, Martin O'Malley, perhaps Biden, and as well as Bernie Sanders, will give people a real sense of people's nuance and their ability to handle themselves and compose themselves in this kind of a format. It's too few debates. This is undemocratic. It so looks tilted towards Hillary Clinton. And I think just in the name of fairness, it would make sense. And since it looks so different now than it did when they set the debate schedule, I think it's time to rethink it. Okay, Patrick, weigh in. Well, I think Arnie has actually flagged the tape. I think she's a little right here uh, because 
the, the fact of the matter is it is too few debates, and these debates were concocted by uh, the Democratic National Committee as they as they began to sort of build this thing. They may have learned something from Republicans in 2012, that too many debates is a terrible thing, but not enough debates is also a terrible thing. Look, these things were done because Hillary Clinton was not supposed to be where she is today. This was supposed exactly. to be a one-person race. She was supposed to be uh, the nominee, pre-anointed, and it's not working out that way. In fact, as a candidate, Hillary Clinton, uh, while she looks very good on paper, <clears throat> she's been a disaster. She has been an unmitigated disaster. So what may happen here is if the vice president jumps into the race, which I think he, he very well may, uh, and Bernie Sanders continues to uh, gain on her or, or lead her in some of these national polls, it will be Hillary Clinton that's asking for more debates because one of the things she's got to do is convince people uh, that she is capable of the job and that she's prepared to think on her feet and handle herself. And her biggest problem right now is she can't talk about anything right now except emails and the Clinton Foundation. So I do think that more debates is a better thing. I think, frankly, with Biden and or Bernie Sanders uh, possibly uh, fueling this race a little further, that there will be more uh, outcry for more debates, and some of those may just come from the very person who didn't want too many debates. Exactly. And that's Hillary exactly. Clinton. Okay. He, and, Kelly, that's the most important thing he has said. Hillary needs the debates. Now she needs them because she has to be able to articulate in a way that everybody will pay attention to what is her policy vision. He's, he's ap- we're so focused on the emails on the Clinton Foundation. Didn't she apologize? Didn't she apologize? It's making me nauseous. And I think what really needs to happen is in these debates, she gets a chance to articulate her vision. She gets a chance to show her chops. All these things are important. You're absolutely right. She needs the debates in some ways more than Bernie, more than Martin O'Malley, because she needs to show people who she is and what is her vision for America. Well, we will see. Um, And if I know the folks in New Hampshire, they like more conversation rather than less. So I, I imagine that's going to take place. Let me move to Bernie Sanders because you both referenced him and his lead. Um, Arnie, you talked about the lead in Iowa, one one poll saying that he's 1% mm-hmm. over uh, Hillary Clinton there. But in New Hampshire, where you guys are based, we're looking at a very solid lead over um, Hillary Clinton and, for that matter, any other of uh, uh, Democratic candidates. Talk about that, if you will, uh, Patrick. Start with you. What do those numbers say? Are those solid, or are we this ever going to shift as we go along before the primary? Well, let's let's make sure we all remember this. This is the fifth inning. Okay, we we are we are very early in this dance, and I know it seems like just five or so months away uh, when the caucus takes place and the New Hampshire primary takes place. That's not that far off. But but I will remind you that every single time in almost every primary when candidates have been ahead or behind uh, at this point, things change. And, you know, candidates don't make campaigns. Campaigns make candidates. And so the narrative of each of these people will change as events, uh, world events, as, as they behave in terms of how they comport themselves, how they debate. All of these things will change. I think the Bernie Sanders thing is interesting because I don't believe that the Bernie Sanders thing is a move to support the, the ideas of Bernie Sanders necessarily. I think that there is a populist progressive side to the Democratic Party who likes the stuff Bernie talks about. But I also think that the Sanders vote right now is not so much a Sanders vote as an anti-Hillary vote. And these are the people that wanted Elizabeth Warren to run for president. They like this sort of, uh, you know, 
uh, Bernie's nonconformist ways, and he is everything that Hillary is not. I mean, look, a socialist from Vermont, who would ever thunk? But the fact of the matter is he's everything that Hillary can't be. He's genuine. He's honest. He says some wacky stuff. But at the end of the day, I think people look and say, it is a little refreshing to hear from this guy who kind of gets up there without a net. So to me, uh, what's going to happen here is if Vice President Biden jumps into this thing, the Hillary, anti-Hillary vote has somewhere else to go. And the question then is, can Bernie Sanders maintain these leads or does this vote move toward Biden or do they split the anti-Hillary vote, which could be a good thing, ironically enough, for Hillary Clinton. Arnie, let me put the question to you this way, and that is, last week uh, the public editor of the New York Times was assailed by um, folks who are Bernie Sanders uh, supporters saying, you are not taking this campaign seriously. In fact, none of you are. Let me just say something. I don't know what you're talking about, Patrick. The wacky stuff that Bernie is saying, I think what Bernie is saying is what a lot of people have been saying. It's what Elizabeth Warren is saying. A lot of the stuff that Joe Biden will be saying. It's a lot of stuff the Pope is saying. I mean, wacky stuff, I don't think so. And in fact, I think what you find, if you actually look into the polls in Iowa and you look into the polls in New Hampshire, it is not anti-Hillary. It is that his policy vision is resonating with people who've seen a rising gap between the rich and the poor, who are recognizing that we aren't investing in our infrastructure, or looking at the cost of college, who are worried about so many things, who are worried about climate change. And Bernie is talking directly to all those issues that impact working folks. And I think he also represents, in an interesting way, a non-politician. Yes, he was mayor of Burlington. Yes, he was in Congress. Yes, he's a U.S. senator. But he's never taken on the package of the sort of scripted uh, politician who, you know, basically applies, goes to the lobbyists, goes to the money, and then speaks their mind, whatever that is. And I think that's one of the reasons why he is resonating. And I think people aren't taking him seriously. And let me also say something. Bernie Sanders has an echo chamber that Hillary Clinton does not. Bernie Sanders' echo chamber is Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama, and Pope Frank. Who is um, Hillary Clinton's echo chamber? Person? Apparently, and- Uma is her echo chamber. But, yeah. but well, let me just jump in for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, Arnie, I, I understand that you feel passionate about the things Bernie Sanders is speaking about. I will tell you that the Republicans should hope that Bernie Sanders is the nominee. Because the fact of the matter is, this is a guy who is unelectable in a national campaign, period. He is George McGovern, only more liberal. And we have the same problem on our side with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is unelectable as a national candidate. So with the fringes of both sides, Bernie Sanders getting up and railing on about too much soap and deodorant and that we need to take on the establishment and take back Wall Street and all this stuff. We've been doing this for years. We've been hearing this out of Obama and Elizabeth Warren and others. But the fact of the matter is the people in the middle The people in the movable middle, as we talk about in politics, who will decide this election are not going to go for Bernie Sanders and they're not going to go for Donald Trump. They look at both of these folks and say they are too extreme on either sides of the room. I just want to remind you that – all right, go on. I I won't (laughs) fight him right now. But I just want to remind you that a lot of what Donald Trump is saying, which is interesting, which is talking about taking on Wall Street, talking about raising taxes on the rich. So you've got this really interesting set of extremes, the Donald Trump and the Bernie Sanders, as you say, and you put those numbers together. I think it represents the vast majority of Americans who are disgusted with the gap or disgusted with Wall Street, who are seeing a Congress that's not capable of addressing the needs of, of, of working folks. Donald Trump is sounding more like Bernie Sanders. That should get the Republicans nervous. 
nervous because he's number one in your polls, not mine. <laughs> I would say just uh, uh, responding to Patrick's comment about the unelectability of either of these candidates in terms of some of the statements that they make, that I think I hear from a lot of people who are great supporters of both, but who would not vote for them. And if that what, if that is what Patrick is saying, because people are concerned about, I don't want to waste my vote, I got to go to with somebody that I believe can win. That's a different scenario. It doesn't mean they don't yeah, appreciate think, Kelly, what they're a, saying. You know, I think that's a very good point. But one thing I would I would point out is in some of the more recent polling for the first time, Republicans are saying that they actually believe Donald Trump can be the nominee of the party, hmm. uh, that he can win. That's different than who am I going to vote for? Ideology over electability. Yeah. yeah. The, the 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 challenge here is going to be this. I think that. Um, you know, when you look at when you look at the choices people make right now, both sides, everybody in this country is angry at Washington. They want someone who'll break the furniture, somebody who'll go down and set the city on fire. <clears throat> I guarantee you that Bernie Trump and Donald Donald Bernie Trump, Donald <laughs> That's Trump interesting. and Bernie Sanders <laughs> are both perfectly capable of breaking furniture. They, they, they can go down there and do all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, the American people are pretty hopeful, and they want someone who can not only change the culture of Washington, but who can also rebuild and fix the institution of government in a way that it is more effective in serving the American people. Neither one of these guys is capable of doing that. So they are both protest candidates. Bernie Sanders isn't even a Democrat. I don't even know if, if, if Secretary of State Bill Neither Gardner is Donald Trump. Is oh, come on. On, the, on the ballot. All right, we're leaving that one there for a while. Just let me say one thing quickly, Callie. Um, Bernie Sanders was the mayor of Burlington. The first time he won, he won by just a handful of votes. Then he got an enormous re-election. He has run something. He believes in good government. He believes in effective government. He doesn't want to blow things up. He wants to repair things. I think that's true of Joe Biden. I actually think that's true of Hillary Clinton. Your fear is Donald Trump. Donald Trump has no history at doing anything except sort of buying and selling his name. He says one thing one day. He says the opposite the other. Donald Trump is your problem. He is the nation's problem, and he is now going to be the electorate's problem. That is not the case with Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, or Hillary Clinton. That All right, is we're leaving issue. that there right now because we'll be back to it, I am certain, with both of you and uh, many other people along the way. Let me segue to uh, Joe Biden because he, you've raised his name many times. Uh, he is someone that people are looking to, and his numbers have just jumped up tremendously in the latest polls, and he is not a candidate. Um, last week, he was in New York talking about issues that matter to him, um, particularly sexual assault issues. He was talking about these rape kits and getting the, the funding for them. He's talking about wages, all of these things that uh, people are familiar uh, with him, the familiar that, he, that um, put him together with the issues that, that mean something to him. And it's resonating to people for whatever reason at this moment. But at the same time, he is not a candidate, and he's now said twice, and I want to play a clip from uh, his appearance last week on Stephen Colbert's new show, in which he says, once again, he's not certain he can run. So here it is. I don't think any man or woman should run for president unless, number one, they know exactly why they would want to be president, and two, they can look at the folks out there and say, I promise you, you have my whole heart, my whole soul, my energy, and my passion to do this. And, and I'd be lying 
if I said that I knew I was there. Now, let me say to both of you, I've heard I heard that statement and the longer version of it. And I heard what he said at the synagogue, I think, a week or so ago. I just don't get that he's running. To me, the signals are that he's just not prepared emotionally to run. And I understand that. Um, So I don't know where people are getting that he's about to jump in. Uh, I'll start with you, Arnie. Um, What you just heard was the authentic Joe Biden. And I think right now, and Patrick, you probably will agree with me, Hillary's problem right now is her authenticity and her ability to sort of get beyond the email scandal and whatever. And I think there's a a craving for that on the Democratic side. You were talking about electability. I think Joe Biden has the potential for that electability. He is lucky in some ways because he's been vice president. So in in a way, he hasn't had to sort of be in the policy position of someone with a Senate Senate career. We can show that he voted for this and didn't vote for that. He has been close, one heartbeat away from the most powerful leader in the free world. So he obviously understands what the job entails. He's adored by Barack Obama. And the fact that he is having difficulty, anybody would have difficulty. Making that decision without the loss of your son would be hard. But I think it also speaks to the fact that he is being pressured by people because in case it turns out that Hillary Clinton is not able to perform in the way people expected, they need someone who, as Patrick will say, is viable and understandable. And I will tell you, Patrick, here's my dream ticket, Biden-Bernie. And the reason is, is you got like two old men dishing. They both care a lot about the middle class. That is their raison d'etre. They can speak to working folks. And both of them have an authenticity about it. The fact that he is telling you, I don't know yet. He actually is one of the few people on the planet who has time to think it through. Well, Patrick, maybe he has time to think it through, but there are money concerns. I mean, you know, the, the funders, uh, are some of them are already committed to other people. I know there's a there's sort of a, I, I saw a young man this morning saying running essentially what was a ready for Biden uh, effort. And he said he was doing it without Biden's um, sign, you know, sign off on it. So uh, clearly there are lots of folks who are interested in it, but I just don't see I don't hear him saying that. I'd like to get your take on it. Well, you know, this is uh, this is uh, <laughs> this is the pretty girl of the dance that you have to ask more than once. I mean, Joe Biden is playing this very, very smart. And I do yes. think that Arnie's right. Joe Biden has the one thing Hillary Clinton never can. Whether you like Joe Biden or you don't, he is the genuine article. He's Joe from Scranton. He sometimes is crazy Uncle Joe. He goes out and says things. He speaks off the cuff. But it's a genuineness. And and anyone who looks at someone like Joe Biden who's lost uh, what he's lost in his life, uh, you know, his, his, his wife and his uh, young son uh, and now uh, his older son uh, in the way he has – who's wanted to be president for so long, and he has. It's been 30 years, 25, 30 years this guy's been thinking about the presidency. So I do think that the one thing he's doing very, very well is taking the time, and I think he not only has the time, uh, Callie, one of the things they're counting on is at some point uh, Hillary Clinton will clearly be seen by the party uh, as as they develop panic mode as less and less viable, less and less genuine, and less and less able to get out of the fundamental problem she has, which is Hillary Clinton. And Joe Biden is kind of the antidote to that. Uh, I I do think that that you cannot take the authenticity out of Joe Biden. And I also think he's done something else very, very smart. This conversation with Elizabeth Warren at the vice president's home in in Washington a few weeks ago was a very smart thing. And Elizabeth Warren's playing it very coy. 
Oh, we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about there were many subjects, but we don't know exactly what was talked about. One thing Joe Biden understands, Elizabeth Warren is a very important voice in this party. So why Arnie says that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden might be a great ticket, I know a better ticket for the Democrats. And that ticket is Biden-Warren. And that would ensure at least 12 years of Democratic control of the White House. That's a real concern to Republicans. So my sense is that Joe Biden is real. He does have time. And I think every day these polling numbers get worse, the Biden people try and say, all right, maybe. It's going to be hard. I will also tell you this, in politics, raising money, you know, if you invest in horses and you invest a lot of money and the horse doesn't run well at the race, those people who invest that money will very quickly find another horse. Right now, Hillary ain't running around the track too well, and I would not be surprised if someone like Joe Biden got in that those dollars don't redirect and redirect very, very quickly. Hold on one and second, Arnie. Um, that's my guest, Patrick Griffin of Purple Strategies. He's part of our New Hampshire Insiders Conversation. Also joining me is Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. And if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. Go ahead, Arnie. There's a lot of money on the table, Kelly. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say this. It hasn't been all soaked up. Uh, I mean, that's part of the problem with this economy. You know, we, we have this huge gap between rich and poor, and the rich are really rich. So there is money and there's time for Joe Biden. I think that's important. This is also an opportunity for Hillary Clinton to figure out, can she change her strategy? Can she recognize the mistakes she's made? Can she own those mistakes? And can she pivot? We've seen this happen with John McCain. John McCain is in the state of New Hampshire this weekend. And it's it's interesting because remember when John McCain was the anointed in like January and by the end of the summer, everybody had left him, money had left him, and he was able to turn his campaign around and become the nominee of the party. We have seen it happen before. People can learn from their mistakes. This is actually a test of leadership for Hillary Clinton. Can she fix her problems? If she can't, there will be a Joe Biden. There will be someone else. But I think she has the most opportunity to do it. She has the, the strongest network, more money. Money, more name recognition. She's the most recognized person on the planet, but that doesn't guarantee that she can win and figure out what she needs to do. She has the time. The question is, does she know how to use it? Well, well said. I will say I've been wrong before, but I don't see either Biden or Elizabeth Warren getting in this. So I'll eat my words later. You can remind me. <laughs> let, let me move on and say that CNN has announced its lineup of folks who will be in the next huge Republican debate, which is coming up on Wednesday. Carly Fiorina, Fiorina is one of the candidates who made the big stage this time. She's not at the at the uh, off the primetime kitty uh, table. table, as people have described it, or happy hour, somebody else described it as. Um, and it's the timing is perfect for her in terms of name recognition and all of that, because uh, Donald Trump decided to attack her looks, uh, saying that, uh, look at that face. Who would want a president with her face? I thought she handled it brilliantly by saying, uh, you know, the, let the comments stand for themselves. And I believe that he's making comments about me because he's concerned that I'm rising in the polls. Uh, I can't wait to see her on the same stage with Donald Trump and the others. I think it's going to be quite interesting. Patrick, I'll let you take the first swing at this. I, you know, I've always been impressed with Carly Fiorina. And whether you, again, it's, it's kind of like Joe Biden, whether you agree or disagree with her ideologically, she's a very compelling woman. She's smart. Uh, she is very articulate. She showed that in that first happy hour debate, which is uh, one of the reasons why she's on the stage this time and rising in the polls. 
Uh, look, uh, Donald Trump is a boorish billionaire in an orange freight wig. Okay, I will assure you today that Donald Trump will not be the nominee of the Republican Party, and that's not brave talk. That's just a fact. In politics, timing is everything. And we all talk about friends we knew who peaked too early in high school. Well, that's Donald Trump in this race. I do not believe he will be the nominee of the Republican Party, mainly because you cannot run around the country doing Don Rickles' act from the 1970s, calling people losers and hockey pucks and whatever else he says. The things he said about Carly Fiorina are insulting. They are, uh, they are extraordinarily offensive, not just to women, but to anybody who thinks politics should be about at least a semi-civil discourse. So I think what we're going to start to see is Trump's got this 30 percent thing going uh, of angry people who are for him. But there's a supernova effect to Donald Trump, and we're starting to see it. Kelly, I agree with you. In that debate next week, there will be a moment. There will be a Reagan microphone moment, perhaps. <clears throat> there will be uh, a sister soldier moment, perhaps. But there will be a moment at some point for some candidate to turn to him, and I would love to see it be Carly Fiorina, uh, and essentially dress him down, because that's what Donald Trump needs. He is terrible for the Republican brand. Arnie is right. Um, we're stuck with him even after he's not the nominee because he said and done some things that are very damaging to the Republican brand. He won't be the nominee. Carly Fiorina is at least someone who represents a positive, hopeful uh, vision of the future. And watch her, because yeah. I think we haven't seen the last of her, whether she wins or loses. She will play a major role in the party going forward. Um, Arnie, last word on Carly Fiorina and the Trump in, effect. In an interesting way, Donald Trump has done Carly Fiorina a favor, and that is this. That's by, true. By his board, he has. Now she is actually, she has more notoriety today than she did the, an hour before he made the comment. So he's That's actually right. uh, brought her stature up. It turned out her comment, her response was very good. I'll let it stand for itself. Instead, all the other Republican candidates are coming to her defense. So she's got, you know, 16 people defending her against Donald Trump. She will now be the focus of a lot of this attention at the next debate. She couldn't pay for this kind of notoriety. So in some ways, she owes Donald Trump a, a, a kiss in some ways. But at the same time, I, I think what, what it also does for Carly Fiorina is that it, it gives her an opportunity because, one, she is the only female in the debate format. Right. And we know that this is where she can also speak to Hillary Clinton in a way that is not perceived as sexist. Donald Trump has attacked her what? In a sexist fashion. So in some ways, her voice becomes even more important in this debate. And I think it'll be interesting. We, we started this conversation in the very beginning, talking about the possible candidates for governor. Jeannie Forrester is the chair of the Finance Committee in the Senate. She is supporting Carly Fiorina. Jeannie has been approached by the Republican Governors Association, encouraging her to run. They are looking at this race, and they are also recognizing that being female is important for Republicans and electing females is important to Republicans. Carly plays a critical role. I will just say this, that uh, because of his comments, she has united ideal people who are opposite ideologically, exactly. women, who are saying, oh, no, that is not how you um, address a, a professional candidate exactly. in this race. So that's the last word on that. I thank you both, Arnie and Pat. They are our New Hampshire insiders for giving us the inside poop from the Granite State. Arnie Arneson hosts The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, which you can find on WNHN-FM. And Patrick Griffin is the former GOP political strategist and current managing partner of Purple Strategies New England. Thank you to you both. Ciao. Thank you.
Coming up, comedy classes at Emerson College are no joke. We talk to the sitcom writer who is heading up a new comedy major, locally based professional comic, and an aspiring comedian who also happens to be a Harvard University student. That's next on Under the Radar. Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. School's back in session, but for one set of majors, the goal is to joke around. Emerson College's comedy arts degree has begun its inaugural year. Students will learn comedy's historical roots dating back to the Greeks and Romans, how to write for stand-up, and how to perfect a sketch performance. We are joined by Marty Cook, creator and director of the new comedic arts program at Emerson. She's also the associate chair of the Visual and Media Arts Department and author of the book, Right to TV, Out of Your Head and Onto the Screen. Hi, Marty. Hi. Also with us is Boston-based professional comic, Corey Rodriguez. Hi, Corey. Hey, how you doing? And finally, aspiring comedian, Sierra Coteau, a Harvard student recently featured on NBC's Last Comic Standing. I am so excited that all of you are here. I am a huge comedy fan. I watch all the comedy shows, and um, occasionally I go out to actually see it in live performance. So when I heard about this comedy course, Marty, I was very excited. It grabbed my attention. Tell us about how it's going to work, because it's a four-year actual program, not just one course. Yes, it's a four-year program. It's a BFA, so it's we're going to just entrench students in all things comedy. It's writing, production, and performance, uh, and that's going to be the, the real heart and soul of it. But it's grounded in liberal arts because uh, comedians have to be, uh, have to know liberal arts in order to have a background in, you know, things like if you want to be a stand-up, you got to know world politics, history, all of that stuff. And we have a lot of specific courses which are really exciting um, in the background of comedy, the history of comedy, the theory of humor and laughter. And then there's a lot of really fun courses in stand-up, sketch, production. So it's fun, but it's really, really serious as well. I'm glad you mentioned that because people, you know, when they heard about it, a lot of people said, how can you teach comedy? And so, you know, this is, it's a whole program of really looking at um, the subject area in many ways. Yes, it is. And, you know, I teach comedy every day, and I have for years. And Emerson has taught comedy for years, and we've been really successful at it. If you look at many of our alums, we've got successful alums in all areas of comedy, from writing, producing, stand-up. So we've taught it for a long time, and Can you teach somebody to be funny, like if somebody's really serious, like your mother? Well, maybe not. But if people come in with seeds of comedic talent, we can actually grow and nurture those seeds, and we can get them to where they want to be a lot faster, I believe, than if they did it on their own. Okay. Well, Corey Rodriguez, uh, those students, many of them are going to want to get where you are now, um, out on the stage performing all around the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us how you got started. Um, I got started uh, just going to mics at first, open mics, and uh, that's usually how most of us get started. Uh, we don't usually go to Emerson and get, <laughs> and get the cheat sheet right there. <laughs> and, uh, but um, 
I uh, I started at Mike's. I used to do improv before that. I, I started at the uh, Improv Asylum in Boston, and uh, I was doing improv for a while. And I just I don't know. After a while, we, we formed our own troupe, and we were out and we were performing at different places, the Middle East, and all these other little places. And then I just I didn't I didn't I didn't like my company that I was with as much because they're a little different. Improv is a different is a different animal and the people that you encounter in it are a little bit different. They're not as uh they're just different. I'll just mm-hmm. leave it like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just I wanted to try my own. So I started going to Mike's and um then you go from there. I mean you meet other comics and you connect with and then you just start to roll. Who told you you were funny or how did you know you were funny? Whew, that's a good question. Um I've always with family, every every family gathering, you know, like I, I'm very keen on uh, mimicking and imitating and mocking. My family's from from North Carolina, so they're like, "Who who you mocking me?" You know, they, they, they say mocking. But anyway, uh, I would I was very good at doing that, and so I would do that all the time. And then it became that every family reunion, like I had to stand up. It was like I had to take time to do this, and it it began to get like ah, uh, like you know, every everybody yeah. around me and my teachers and my you know every. Uh, my principals, I would walk up and down the hallways and I would be able to mimic their voices. And so oh. the kids and the teachers would be laughing, like, because I would do the principal, you know, like clear out the hallways like the principal and the teachers are dying laughing and they're like, stop, you know, you got to stop. <laughs> and uh, so so all my life has kind of been like that. Like my brother didn't come to my shows for the first three, four years because he was like, you, you've always been a comic and, and whatever. I don't need to see you, <laughs> you know. Uh, um but but people used to mm. say that, right? So so to get more direct to your question, people used to say you're really funny. Okay, you're funny, you're funny. And I just I didn't I didn't think I was a clown though. So I didn't think I was funny. You could like do that. it professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, personality, yeah, right. not not necessarily a clown. So okay, that's Corey Rodriguez. He's a professional comic. Mm. Uh, Sierra Cateau, you are a Harvard University student. Imagining the conversation with your parents. I'm going to Harvard and I'm going to become a comedian. Uh, how did you, why did you decide that this was the area that you were interested in? Sure, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Um, yeah, I started like in high school. So I started sophomore year of high school and I was like 16, kind of did a little bit. And I think they thought it was cute, you know, like, oh, yeah, you can go out there and tell your jokes and come back home and then like hopefully like, you know, then apply to colleges. Um so yeah, I was definitely kind of a hobby for a while, and I didn't really take it too seriously. And then when I came out here to Boston and went to school at Harvard, it was it was like I guess going to college too. There's just always like so much of a comedy scene at these colleges because you know you have students all around Boston, and then just like a lot of comedy history at Harvard, and like in some of the student groups, um, over writing, some stand up, some improv. So um, I got more involved, and then since then, I guess I've just always. Um, gone home over the summer uh, back to Los Angeles where I'm from and like performed there too so it's just kind of like kept going up and up um, until now I kind of feel like I definitely want to do it and try to work professionally um, and you know work in comedy even though it's not the most like conventional route I suppose. (laughs) Out of Harvard Um, for sure. Sure yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah but I think like you know I've discussed it with my parents a lot and kind of walked them through my thought process and so I've slowly brought them over to my side but they've always been very supportive um, and have come watch my shows. I think after a while like they can they've you know seen like everything they could possibly see so I think they kind of stopped at a certain point but definitely um, yeah they're they're on my side now so it's great. Okay. (laughs) Now, back to you, Marty Cook, because when we're talking about teaching comedy and Corey said he, you know, went to open mics and all that. One of the things I've learned from watching 
last comic standing. And the comments of comments from the judges is the writing is so key. So we're looking at comics and they are, you know, doing what seems like just something they just thought of at the top of their head. But in fact, it's carefully crafted, uh, you know, as a performance. And your background is in situation comedy. And I want to play a little clip from one of the situation comedies you work for, and that's Full House. People may remember that program. Um, they're now doing an update of it called Fuller House. But here's a clip from Full House. Are you sure your wedding announcement is in today's paper? It better be. I got copies for all my relatives. They love to see my name in print. Joe, oh, here it is. This is so exciting. So, about those 49ers, huh? Give me that paper. No, honey, give me the really paper. Want to give see me this. that. You don't. Give you me don't. this. Thank you. <laughs> Rebecca Donaldson, award winning journalist and popular host of the Wake Up San Francisco show, to wed. Jersey Katsopoulos. <laughs> Jersey Katsopoulos. Sounds like a Greek cow. Now, Marty Cook, you wrote that episode, um, and you have to write for all of those various characters when you're doing a situation comedy. Talk about the importance of writing in general in comedy. Well, I think writing is, as you mentioned, key in comedy. You have to be really, I think, brilliant to write really smart edgy comedy. And we wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily of course call full house edgy, but you still have to, you know, it, it's not as easy as it looks. So many people and I'm sure you guys get this too, think that it's sort of easy in the way that you just sort of show up and it rolls off your tongue, but in fact it takes years of practice. The heart and soul of any joke or stand up is or sketch is writing. And writing is not, and I'm sure you guys will agree, is not nearly as easy as sometimes I think it appears to people. You know, oh, just whip out that script. And writing funny is hard. And I say this to, to students all the time because, you know, sometimes students talk about, should I write drama? Should I write comedy? And, and they sort of think, well, a comedy script is, you know, a half hour. I can do that because it's <laughs> less. And I say, you're kidding yourself because comedy is by far the hardest type of writing on the planet. That's Marty Cook. She's creator and director of the new comedic arts program at Emerson. So, Corey Rodriguez, I was on the floor listening to you <laughs> at the, the Laugh Boston. Yeah. I mean, beating the table. <laughs> My friend and I, that was how funny it was. So I'm very aware that it uh, took you a long time to craft yeah. you know, the particular routine that you did that night yeah. and also to think about the writing of it. I want to play a clip. Uh, it wasn't the one that I heard that night, but here's another funny one from Corey Rodriguez. My grandfather, he doesn't use the microwave, right? Everything he puts in the microwave, he pushes 4333. Doesn't matter what it is, pop tots, ramen noodles, <laughs> 43.33. The other day he came in the kitchen, he was reheating a fish and chip, and he had it in one of those white styrofoam containers. Yeah. He came, he put it in the microwave. <laughs> he pushed 43.33. I said, this is gonna be good. At like the 15 minute mark, the container just collapsed. At the 22-minute mark, he came back in the kitchen. He was looking in the microwave. He said, hey, that don't look right. I don't remember putting cheese on that stuff. So there you have it. You've got the 4333 cleverly roving in, yeah. you know, the pacing and all that's important, but the writing. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the, 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 uh, 
it's so funny as a comedian because right now I'm listening to that I'm like that was cool but you gotta hit it in like that's <laughs> so because you're always like nah it was alright it's alright but um, I think one one cheat to the writing and, and, and just to back up something that Marty said which is really funny is people think it's a lot easier than it is and so friends will always come up to you or just people after a show will come and they'll They'll try to throw you a joke, and they'll say something like, uh, oh, this was really funny. This happened to me at work the other day. So they'll tell you some <laughs> stupid story. And then they'll be like, but, you know, just comedy it up. You know, comedy it up. You know, you know, whatever you do, just say it. Or, or people will try to talk like me while they're telling me the joke. They'll be like, yo, the other day I was at work. And uh, I'm like, yo. To, they think it's just the way they're saying it. It's funny. Um, but, yeah, that, that's one thing that always happens. And one, one cheat I would say to to the writing is at least for me is emotion because um, even if I'm in front of people, you know, I work a lot of colleges and I, I work everywhere, you know, churches, I do every kind of gig and um, it's the emotion, no matter what I'm talking about, if people can feel that emotion through whatever it is you're speaking about, it's kind of a quick Avenue in, into your writing. I'm, I'm not the type of writer who writes about time machines and just like, I got you, you know, like tricks. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really do a lot of misdirections. You know, that's mm-hmm. what it's called in the game. It's called misdirection. Like, you think I'm going right, but I fooled you. I went left. Mm-hmm. You know, so people are like, whoa, I was surprised. That was so clever. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy who's, you know, instead of tricking you like we're pulling off the highway and getting off a different exit, I'll bring you down the highway and tell you everything we're going to see and we can enjoy it together. Mm-hmm. But it's just enjoyable enough that you're like, oh, my God, I'm enjoying all of this. Not necessarily the person who's like, you thought we were getting off at exit 16, but we're going to 18. Ha ha. Right. Like, I'm not that guy. Yes. You get what but I'm saying? Have, yes, yeah. I do. And you have to know what your style is yeah. and how to approach it and then how to write within your framework. That's exactly. the whole point of this. And exactly. that supports what Marty says. Uh, now, Sierra. So I'm watching Last Comic Standing, NBC's Last Comic Standing, one of my favorite shows. And I was thrilled when I saw you uh, get up there. And, boy, you held your own with all of these you know, pretty well-known as uh, professional comics. So I want to just give people a sense of uh, a little excerpt of, of your performance on uh, Last Comic Standing. Here is Sarah Kato. I'm sorry. I've, I'm so rude. I've been up here for, what, like a minute already? I haven't even told you what, guys, what kind of Asian I am. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm actually half Chinese, half Japanese. Um, but I grew up speaking only English, you know, so it's definitely, it's strange when I go to, like, a Chinese restaurant, right? You know, they see this eager face. They come up to me, speaking in their tongues, right? And I have to, yeah. And I have to be like, sorry, you know, no hablo chingles. <laughs> sorry. I thought it was very clever. So did the judges. You got it. And you did get comments on the writing, which is why I oh, raised yeah. it again. Um, how, how, what's your process? Corey is, and what's your style? Corey's explained his. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm still figuring it out. It's always like I'm trying to always write down things and I think of them, you know, if little funny things happen or someone says something funny, it's like, oh, okay, maybe I can turn that into something stand-up. But um, I guess from there, I think I always try to keep it pretty, like, personal. I guess a lot of that stuff, it's all very, like, personal just because, you know, to avoid, like, plagiarism or saying something that's already been said, but also because that's just kind of, like, where I think I am the most convincing if I'm able to, like, get up there. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If I'm not making up a bunch of things, then I I don't really lose my way as much. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, yeah, I think that's kind of the main thing. I try to, sometimes I talk to myself in my room, which is weird for my roommates, probably, (laughs) um, (laughs) and see what comes out of that. Uh, But, yeah, I would say definitely, like, trying to expand on things that I've thought of earlier. And um, I, I would say I 
maybe some of the misdirection things like I like to do a little bit more but they do um, but I would love to get more into like stories and stuff mm-hmm. you know because I think that's where a lot of you know the more uh, I guess like that's a little general but like the more advanced comedians I think go into those with the longer stories so they do like the hour long sort of sets and you can really keep people's attention for that long like that would be great but obviously like on that show it was um, we had like three and a half minutes so very short like typically the one-liners were what people brought to the brought to the stage and that was kind of the style. But just to have that experience, it's something. Uh, um, you know, here's a here's a question for you, Marty. How do you define comedy, really? I mean, because we've, we, we're talking to two, one aspiring professional, one professional. There are many ways you can approach how you would be a performer. I, I don't even know quite how to define it. Well, I'm not sure how to define it, except I think that they both defined it perfectly in that I think it comes from personal experience and your personal view on the world. And that personal view on the world can be your grandfather and the microwave, or it could be, you know, based on your ethnic upbringing and those observations. So I think it's really like any artist, because comedy is an art. And I think like any artist, it's how you look at the world and how you view it. And uh, and I think that there's things like universal humor, which is exactly what Corey's talking about, which is, you know, you find those things. And Seinfeld was wonderful mm, at this. Yes. You find those things that we all sort of think and we all sort of experience. And then it's your take on it that makes people go along for that ride. And they love that ride. One of the things that I know that's coming out of the course that you're teaching is the business of comedy. I want all of you to sort of address that because mm-hmm. w- when when they leave, when the graduates leave, they're going to have a sense of what it is to be a professional in terms of all of the stuff that you have to do to, to support yourself, really. And that's a key to this as well. And so my question to you, Marty, is, is the business of comedy at a peak now? I don't know if it's because I'm paying attention more. It feels like comedy is really... Um, more central than it has been in the past. I don't know why. Is is that just me? No. I I actually think that it is. um, I think it's hot, hot, hot right now. And I think, you know, why is that? My personal opinion is look at the world around us. You know, it's, it's, you know, we live at a time where, you know, kindergartners get shot. You go to movie theaters, you get shot. There's war happening. And I think that people, it's a stressful world that we live in. And I think that people want to have that laugh. And so I think that that's part of what what makes it hot is that, you know, but we all want to laugh. Who doesn't want to have a good laugh rather than being, you know, totally serious. So I think it's part of, you know, the way the world is today, um, that it has become hot, hot, hot. But it is. You're right. It's at its peak. So Corey, are you seeing that in your getting more, um, uh, gigs? Are you seeing that among your fellow comedians that comedy is something that you know people are looking for now and and, and want? Um, I think there is a, a resurgence. I don't know if that, is that the right word? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Look at the Harvard girl. Uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a, <laughs> You're not the Emerson girl. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I mean, I looked at you too. Uh, so there's a big resurgence of of, of um, comedy. It seems like. Um, I want to answer your question. Mm-hmm. So do I see the business side on the uptake only because of social media? I would mm. co-sign that. Okay. Because I, I see a lot of, a lot more uh, to stay active, to stay on top of things. You need to have your social media 
because uh, everyone has their phone and they're just looking their phone and everything has to be faster and quicker and accessible and cool and the way you market your shows has to be cooler and they need to see it and you can't over market them and you can't so the, that side of things is very you have to be very aware of that you have to be um and it, you know you have to be very conscious of that part but as far as mm, i mean we have some big comics right now obviously mm-hmm. in the movies things are bigger we're seeing the does Amy that trickle Schumer, down to people like yourself though does, does that help it it does I mean it does and it doesn't I, I I don't know why the comedy's on an upswing again right now I mean I don't know if Trump has something to do with that or, or just, that would be Donald Trump the presidential candidate yes, yes. all the jokes that can be made but but I think um I, I can't I can't discredit what Marty's saying about you know just so many bad things are just trying to flip it on the other side and make it be good things I don't know why it seems to be on the rise again but um I don't. I don't know. I okay. really. I really. I really can't answer that question. Okay. But I do. I do notice. I will say this. I do notice again. Like I said, the social media is a big thing. And when you talk about business and comedy, since we're saying that, business, it, it some comics, you know, they they come into the business with too much of the business and not enough of the comedy, comedy to back mm-hmm. it up. So it kind of they 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 don't look good. Mm-hmm. It's just too much. Like yo, I'm gonna be here there, but they they they're not good. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So that that marriage of the two is is probably the most important thing. It's almost better to have way better skills, way better jokes mm-hmm. than your business side, and let the business catch up. Okay, you know. All right, Sierra. How do you? Because as uh, you're a senior, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you're about to go out and uh, try to yeah. get to <laughs> where Corey is, um, and you got to know about the business of comedy as well. How are you looking at it? And what sure. are you seeing in terms of is it, with the social media piece? Mm. Is that helping you? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I would say definitely like Twitter. Like that's a big thing for comedians. So like trying out jokes on Twitter, being kind of like gathering people to follow you there. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. so creepy, but yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I guess like you know, like you said though, there is kind of uh, I kind of have that fear where it's like, well, I don't want to be like too much into the business and then like not really have anything to back it up to bring to the table. So. I think there is kind of a balance, um, but definitely social media right now. I mean, especially there's a lot of like comedians who I guess could be categorized just as like YouTube people. Um, mm. They do all their things on the internet. And they have a huge following. That um, they sometimes I think get booked for like live performances, and then that's a little tricky because it's very different, you know. Um, but they are very popular, so there's kind of that pressure too. Like a lot of people are like, oh, you should probably do YouTube stuff and. Uh, honestly, I haven't, but like only, but a lot of comedians upload videos of their stand-up onto YouTube, so that's another way to like kind of get your stuff out there. Uh, but it is interesting, I think, because a lot of like my friends, a lot of their only experience with stand-up comedy is seeing it on YouTube and seeing it online. Yeah, which mm. is such a different experience than going in and actually being in the room, right? But um, that's kind of like the new thing, or like they, you know, will see a lot of YouTube things and then also watch like the huge specials on HBO, mm-hmm. and then they kind of, you know, that's kind of their interpretation is like, oh, you know, you just go and be a comedian and then you do your HBO special, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, maybe, but probably <laughs> going to be a while. Um, yeah, so it's definitely like all those things um, that kind of are interesting, like perception of what it is versus like what, you know, you can actually do as a stand-up comedian. So, Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think that, and I really don't pay attention much to YouTube. Mm-hmm. I Netflix, I've watched, you know, oh, downloaded yeah. some mm-hmm. comedy shows and found comedians I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm on the on the fringe of that. Uh, but I would say that mm-hmm. it seems to me that even though I wasn't aware of this, that it's broadened uh, who can be 
uh, professional comic now. That we our expectations, Marty, are that it can be anybody. You know, it can be a uh, Harvard student. It can be Corey Rodriguez, who's been out here doing stuff. I mean, you know, we we're we're open. I think as an audience. Yes, and I mm-hmm. think that's the beautiful part about it is that it is open and. Um, and there are so many avenues uh, to get there, which is really, really wonderful. And what I find even more inspiring is that I'm hearing about comedians in um, countries in Africa, which are, mm. you know, impoverished, that don't have anything. And they're actually having classes in laughter. So I think, again, that comedy is universal. It's it's not, you know, you don't have to be American or Asian, or it doesn't matter what your background is. We all want to have that laugh. And I think also with social media um, and the internet, it's all becoming more global so that it's involving and pulling in more and more people and more and more people are saying, let me try it. Let me let me see what my voice is. And so I think we're getting a lot of variety. And I think it is open to everybody, which, again, I think is what's going to be interesting about this degree at Emerson is that you know, we're going to be able to pull in a whole lot of mm-hmm. diverse and hopefully different people with different kinds of voices and really get a nice comedy community going. Okay, last word from uh, Corey and uh, Sierra. Um, where can we, where can people find you, Corey? You can find me at CoreyRodriguez.com. That's Corey with an E, Rodriguez with an S. On uh, Instagram, it's at CoreyRods, C-O-R-E-Y-R-O-D-S. Uh, Instagram, I mean, uh, Twitter is uh, at CoreyRodriguez. And YouTube, just put in Corey Rodriguez and you'll find me. All right. And Sierra, where can we find you? What, what, what can we, what, what, because we want to see how you're doing. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. I guess uh, I have a website, uh, sierracato.com. It's S I E R R A K A T O W. And my Twitter and Instagram handles are both that. Both that too, as well. Sierra Cotto. Yeah, pretty straightforward. (laughs) Okay, very good. Um, And uh, we should say you didn't win NBC's last comic stand. Spoiler. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But that's all right. You're going to be go forward. Uh, Marty, I understand that this course is going to be uh, uh, some pieces of it in Los Angeles, where you have a, a base. Emerson has a base as well as here. And I'm imagining that you're already flooded. I'd just like to know how many people have signed up for the course. Well, we've gotten a lot, a lot of interest, and uh, applications are pouring in as we speak. So in terms of numbers, they're coming in every day, so I'm not really sure. But there's a lot of interest in it because it's the only program of its kind in the United States. And, yeah, you're right. We have our base in Los Angeles as well, so we're bi-coastal. I love it. (laughs) Well, I might just sneak into that class. Um, I have to say, uh, both uh, uh, Sierra and Corey, you're very funny people, so that's not the uh, stuff you need to weed out. (laughs) For for anybody listening, pay attention to them. So I thank you, Marty, Corey, and Sierra, for joining me. I'm Callie Crossley, and this has been another edition of Under the Radar. My guests have been Marty Cook, creator and director of the new comedic arts program at Emerson and author of the book, Right to TV, Out of Your Head and Onto the Screen. Corey Rodriguez is a Boston-based professional comic, and Sierra Coteau is a Harvard senior whose work has appeared on NBC's Last Comic Standing. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed, and including Lanyep, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineer is John Parker. Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. <laughs>